1: On the banks of the L.A. River near downtown Los Angeles, there's a winery that's been run by the same family for three generations.
0: But we've been on this land that you're going to tour for 106 years.
1: Santo Riboli is the president of San Antonio Winery. He's been in the family business since he was five years old, selling wine in their storefront. As he leads a tour of the building, he shakes hands with people young and old, offering help or bottles of wine.
0: Our regular customers... They like to see someone from the family. First thing they ask, we don't see you, did you sell out?
1: First thing, first thing. (laughs) Santo, who's now 76, remembers an older Los Angeles. Not that long ago, his neighborhood was surrounded by vineyards all the way to Pasadena. No skyscrapers, no gray concrete highways, and no rush hour traffic.
0: Before any of that stuff, this was one of the first suburbs of downtown Los Angeles, uh, 1880
1: but santo isn't old enough to remember the hardest times for his family's business because san antonio winery was founded just in time for a sea change in american life the prohibition era
0: Law and order in power. once more
1: When alcohol was banned in 1920, San Antonio Winery faced an existential threat. All wineries in California did. The federal government was effectively shutting their doors, whether they liked it or not. And for most, that meant shutting their doors permanently. But that wasn't the case for San Antonio Winery. In fact, they didn't have to shut their doors at all. Instead, their business actually boomed because of these laws. How? It's all thanks to an unexpected partner, the Catholic Church.
0: They said, you know, there is a condition here. Why don't we see if you could, we can keep you alive by making altar wines?
1: Everything we eat has a story to tell. Welcome to... If This Food Could Talk, a history show for everyone who eats. I'm Claudia Hanna. Today on the show, we're going back to the roaring 20s in Los Angeles to understand how a winery managed to become more successful during Prohibition than before it. How anti-immigrant sentiment drove the crusade against wine. And how a sacramental loophole in the Prohibition laws may have turned priests into bootleggers. That and so much more after the break. In a narrow hallway in San Antonio Winery, there's a little display built into the wall with shelves of memorabilia. Trophies, ribbons, and old bottles of wine.
0: Old cork pullers, old labels from another era.
1: It's a look into the past of this place.
0: A priceless from 1966 chardonnay for a $1.98 a bottle. Right there. A gallon of Tawny Port for $3.38 a gallon. And even at those prices, winery still made a nickel here and a dime there.
1: Santo Riboli sits in the tasting room of San Antonio Winery, surrounded by barrels of ruby port. He's not only the president of the company, he's also the namesake of its founder, his great uncle, Santo Cambionica. Uncle Santo was an Italian immigrant who came to Los Angeles on the tail of the gold rush, looking for work and money to send back to his family in Berso San Fermo, Italy.
0: He came here in 1912, here in what we call Lincoln Heights. In those days, it was about a a 20-block square community here, right here. This was where most of his people come from, from Italy.
1: Uncle Santo came here with his three brothers. There's a picture of them side by side in the heritage room of the winery, all dressed in tuxedos and black bow ties with waxed handlebar mustaches.
0: He had one brother that was six foot four, and yet he was about five foot seven. They, they were they were husky. They're very hardworking. They're very um, muscular without being big people.
1: Like most immigrants who came to the United States, Santo wanted to create something of his own to start a business. So he immediately went to work to make that dream a reality.
0: Uncle and his brothers and cousins, they worked for the railroad. Uh, railroad was a very good provider here for work. A lot of Europeans, European immigrants worked for the railroad, and so that's what they, that was their first job in America.
1: Santo spent five years laboring on the railroad, and in that time, he was struck with a business idea. He watched the railroad workers and noticed that, like him. A lot of them like to drink wine after work.
0: He sensed it's a little bit of opportunity. You know, he worked in this environment that probably had two, 3,000 railroad workers just down the street from the present winery today. So I think part of it he thought about I go, hmm, interesting. So uh, he started the little winery here on the street where the railroad workers had to pass to go to work and come back from work.
1: With the money he made working on the railroad... Santo opened his winery in 1917. It was only a shack, but it was his shack. And in honor of his Catholic faith, he named it San Antonio Winery.
0: The winery is named after San Antonio of Padua, which means St. Anthony. He was kind of the patron saint, like, here I think people prayed to him to help them out in the new world. I mean, next to God, next to the Pope, it was probably St. Anthony that most people prayed to here.
1: St. Anthony is the patron saint of travelers, of faith in the Holy Communion, and of the recovery of lost things. Whether intended or not, that made him the perfect icon for Santos Winery. St. Anthony's patronage was like a roadmap for the struggles and the victories to come. By naming his winery after a Catholic saint— Santo was paying homage to his faith's long-held connection to wine. Because not only have they been drinking it for thousands of years, the Catholic Church actually introduced California to the wine industry.
2: Wine goes back to the beginning of our country.
1: That's Father Gregory Elder, historian and priest at Sacred Heart Church in Palm Desert, California.
2: Thomas Jefferson was a great importer of wines for his personal use. But it's really going to be the Franciscan Fathers on the West Coast who go into it big time.
1: The Franciscan Fathers are a religious order within the Catholic Church. And hundreds of years ago, they came to the New World as missionaries.
2: When the Franciscan Fathers came here, what did they bring with them? A bunch of Bibles, a bunch of sherry for their wine. And they brought grape cuttings to be planted in the how you know, California got into the wine industry.
1: In 1769, the first vineyards to be planted in California were planted in Orange County by these Catholic missionaries. Little did they know, they were planting the beginnings of the wine business here.
2: I mean, I'm sure there's vineyards uh, elsewhere. Uh, we We wouldn't want to claim sole credit for it out here, but yeah, California was the bruiser in the wine market. As of
1: 1920, there were more than 700 wineries in California, about 90 of which were in Los Angeles County. California wines were on the rise. They had defeated French, German, and Italian wines to win 19 gold medals and three grand prizes at the St. Louis World's Fair. Uncle Santo and his little winery were part of that growth. But Santo wasn't in the wine business for glory. He wasn't trying to make the best wine in the world. According to his great-nephew, Santo was more focused on living up to the example set by St. Anthony.
0: He would start Mass every morning of his life and then, you know, hit their 14-hour work days, on and on. But he did every morning like that. He was generous that if people needed help, he would take care of them, like other immigrants. He loved being kind of like the godfather of children. You call it a padrino in Spanish. He loved that. He must have been the godfather for 300 children in this community.
1: He was doing well enough to survive and give a little back. He even donated to local Catholic schools. And he was working constantly to meet the demand from the railroad workers.
0: He just had some few employees, but he was by himself. And actually, he was doing pretty good. He was probably making about 5,000 gallons of wine a year. It sounds like a lot, but no immigrant would want to buy a bottled 750 ml, 25-ounce bottle of wine. They wanted something at 50 cents a gallon. That meant everybody bought four gallons, so he probably made a thousand sales or less.
1: But in those early years of the winery, America was clearly on the path to prohibition. It was a hot topic all over the country. According to Santo Riboli, his great-uncle wasn't paying much attention to these political changes. He was barely aware of this law, in part because he was focused on his own community, which mostly included the Italian and Mexican immigrants he was selling wine to. But his Uncle Santo wasn't blind. He knew that alcohol was increasingly a serious problem in America. And he knew from the sermons he heard at church that something needed to be done about it. Catholic priests advocated for temperance and moderation, self-control, something Uncle Santo thought was lacking in America.
0: He, he, he kind of, in some way, didn't like everything that was happening in America because, you know, it was like the Wild West. There was no one around to watch over you kind of, like checks and balance.
1: Alcohol was a dangerous vice, and he saw its impact in his own community, among the railroad workers. It might sound a bit hypocritical coming from a guy who's selling wine to laborers, but his wine was meant to be drunk with dinner, not taken in shots at a saloon.
0: There was just a lot of alcoholism in America. There really was. And I think people bonded together, and a lot of them said, look, enough. People drank and... Their wages went there and their families suffered. It was, it was bad, I think, in, in a lot of ways, because for some reason, this public in America couldn't handle it.
1: As Father Gregory Elder tells it, the problem began when the Industrial Revolution allowed for the mass production of distilled alcohols. That's vodka, vodka, gin, whiskey, brandy.
2: Fermented stuff uh, that got distilled, which was only for the royal classes, now it became dirt cheap for the peasants. And the cultural and social devastation of widespread use of hard alcohol in the Industrial Revolution was catastrophically bad. It broke up families, it destroyed things that led to all kinds of vice, led to crime. Uh, you know, people would go to the factory and have to work for uh, 12 hours a day. They come out exhausted. They stop at the Gin Palace on the way home, snarf a few uh, belts of that down. And, well, that's pretty addictive stuff.
1: This was a problem everywhere in America. People of all creeds saw it as a moral issue. But there was one group in particular that took up the mantle against alcohol.
2: Most of the campaigners against the consumption of alcohol were Protestant revivalists. Very devout evangelicals. And the evangelicals were appalled by this. To be fair, they weren't fond of Catholics either. So they saw it, you know, wine, Catholicism as, you know, there's more troubling than you know what to do with.
1: For Catholics like Uncle Santo, wine was significant. It's what Jesus drank at the Last Supper. It's what his priest blessed during Holy Communion. He drank it with dinner and so did his friends and neighbors. Drinking wine was integral to his culture and to his faith. And for a lot of Protestant Prohibitionists, that was part of the point.
2: People who came as immigrants, though, came from, for economic reasons, Southern Europe. They were darker skinned. They had a different religion. They ate funny foods. You know, we take spaghetti as normal, but that's not the case in the 19th century. They looked different. They dressed differently. They spoke a different language. And this hit mainline America like a bombshell.
1: Prohibition wasn't specifically about discriminating against immigrants or Catholics. But according to Father Gregory, it's fair to say for some Protestants, it was a bonus. And the Catholic Church did not take this sitting down.
2: There was a guy named uh, Father Charles McIntyre. He was a Jesuit priest. And he went on a rail that this is just anti-Catholic hatred, this prohibition stuff. Uh, And it got put on the front page of the New York Times, and they were quite angry about this. The Jesuits actually led the cause, arguing against Prohibition.
1: Father McIntyre went on record, saying the Prohibition was a greater evil than the old-time saloon. But in spite of the Catholic Church's anger with Prohibition, in 1920, it became the law, and wineries all over California were left with little choice but to shut down.
2: Now, the grain growers, the beer makers, had a little bit more they could go with. They could go with animal feed and stuff like that. But the winemakers were really on the spot. There wasn't a lot you can do with, you know, 100 tons of grapes other than make wine.
1: But as it turns out, the Catholic Church wasn't done fighting. They had another card up their sleeve. A way to save California's flagging wine industry from going belly up. More after the break. In 1920, when Prohibition officially went into effect nationwide, federal agents all across the country were busting bootleggers and breaking open barrels of alcohol with axes, pouring it into the streets. Santo Cambianica's little shack of a winery was in trouble. At first, like a lot of people, Uncle Santo thought Prohibition was just a blip. It would go away as quickly as it came and everything would go back to normal. As his great-nephew puts it, Maybe San Antonio Winery didn't have to stop all production.
0: If you have a bona fide license, a brewery, a winery like Uncle did, or if you have that bona fide permit by the federal government, you didn't have to shut down. They weren't going to issue new permits to anybody. And if you didn't have it, then that was called bootlegging, right? For people like Uncle, he could continue buying grapes and make all the wine he wanted.
1: Well, not all the wine he wanted, He could make up to 200 gallons for personal consumption. He couldn't sell it. And prohibition didn't just go away. But he had faith that things would work out.
0: He believed in destiny. He believed in the things you can't see and uh, that you can't foresee everything.
1: What Santo didn't realize was that years of Catholic leaders Fighting against Prohibition earned them one little tool, an exemption in the Prohibition laws tailor-made for people like Santo. You could call it a holy loophole.
0: Since communion wine was religious and it was part of a culture, the federal government did exempt that from these laws.
1: And that exemption meant the Catholic Church had the power to get winemakers permits to make and sell wine to priests. The trick was getting the church's blessing. The church didn't want just anyone to produce their wines. They wanted someone with integrity, someone devout, maybe even someone who donated to the church. Someone like Uncle Santo.
0: Someone said to him, which is probably from our St. Peter's Church up the road here, uh, the Italian Catholic Church, they said, you know, there is a condition here why don't we see if you could, we can keep you alive by making altar wines?
1: Making altar wine wasn't something Santo ever considered, but it made so much sense. It was the coming together of the two halves of his life that sustained him, his Catholic faith and his business. Years of prayer to St. Anthony were answered. And so Santo met with the Los Angeles Archdiocese and hammered at an agreement San Antonio Winery would produce altar wine for all the Catholic churches in the city of Los Angeles. The Archdiocese of L.A. doesn't have exact numbers from this time period, but they say there were as many as 72 Catholic churches in L.A. when he started.
0: I don't think there was anyone else making altar wine in the city. I think he was the one.
1: And because the Catholic church wasn't sure how long this loophole would stay on the books, they wanted a lot of wine. Fast. And so San Antonio Winery, which had been making about 5,000 gallons of wine a year, suddenly needed to ramp up to meet this new demand. They started making 20,000 gallons a year.
2: San Antonio Winery in Los Angeles, they made piles of money.
1: When Father Gregory Elder read about this uptick, he thought it was kind of strange. How could a winery be more successful during Prohibition than before it? So he looked a little deeper into the numbers. What he found made his eyes pop. In California, ultra wine skyrocketed.
2: Interestingly, the consumption of church wine went up by about 700% during Prohibition. That's not because we had 700% more masses, I assure you. (laughs) Uh, That wine is going somewhere.
1: When I first heard this, I immediately thought of speakeasies and bootleggers. But priests? As bootleggers, as a Catholic, that made me do a double take.
2: In canon law, there's a a horrible problem with it. You can't just take the blood of Christ, uh, is what we believe it to be, and uh, just hand it out in Dixie cups on the street. That's not going to go down well with the church.
1: And so I thought that maybe all this extra wine was needed because more people than ever were coming to church to taste that sweet, sweet communion wine. But Father Gregory shot that idea down too. Because in the 1920s, the people didn't take communion like they do today. In fact, only one person took communion.
2: In mass, it's only going to be the priest, and it's only going to be a limited amount. The amount of wine that was to go into the chalice uh, was designated as that which can be swallowed in one mouthful.
1: So, if there are at most 72 churches in L.A. buying Santos church wine and they're collectively drinking 72 mouthfuls of wine per day. How could they possibly consume 20,000 gallons in a single year? As Father Gregory puts it, the numbers just don't add up.
2: This suggests to me as a historian that a lot more people are drinking this stuff than they ever did before.
1: It suggests that some members of the church were using altar wine for more than just communion.
2: I'm sure the fathers uh, enjoyed a glass of wine. Uh, with the windows down and the doors locked, shall we say. If you knew a priest and you were friends, he could make a case of wine fly in your direction for a consideration, a good donation. Uh, that would not surprise me one bit. Uh, now, nobody's going to stand up and, and admit that, and I doubt the church is going to publish a list of priests who are willing to sell out the back door. Uh, but I would be very surprised if it uh, didn't happen.
1: Father Elder is speculating, but he seems fairly confident that some priests did sell their sacramental wine. In other words, that 700% increase in church wine production isn't a coincidence. Altar wine was for sale in the sacristy.
2: They would have been very, very discreet about it. And the fact of the matter is, in the priesthood, as in every other walk of life, some people follow the uh, rules more clearly than others.
1: We put the same question to the president of San Antonio Winery. How does he account for that massive increase?
0: You know, you have to remember it is, um, it is good wine. And I'm sure that if, if people couldn't get wine, I mean, why not have a glass or two of it, right? If, I mean, they could, right, within the confines of the church. They could do that, sure.
1: The Catholic Church kept Santo's business alive and thriving. San Antonio Winery was doing so well that santo and his friends started buying up property in la
0: so uncle and all these guys they had these little they had all these little houses that they owned in venice beach right they would take the red car out there they were enamored with venice i know venice naturally and they loved that
1: it was their own little italy it even had canals that mirrored those in their home country They could ride in gondolas from their homes to the beach or walk over the arched bridges that spanned the crisscrossing canals. For a moment in time, Santa was living his dream. He was making it in America. But even that wasn't meant to last. Suddenly, the entire country would be plunged into a depression.
0: And then they lost it all, of course. By the end of Prohibition, he, he only had this little shack of a winery left.
2: many places, with the downfall of Prohibition being celebrated in real old-time hilarity. Yes, and by the renewal of old acquaintances, hotels and nightclubs report a real pre-war spirit among those revelers.
1: San Antonio Winery was one of the lucky ones. Of the more than 700 wineries in California before 1920, only 40 survived to the repeal of Prohibition in 1933. But without the advocacy of Catholic church leaders, that number would have been even lower.
2: Who else in a position of prominence was there to say drinking wine's okay? I think it's fair to say that uh, the church saved the wine industry to a large degree.
1: Coming out of Prohibition, wineries who partnered with the church had a huge competitive advantage. They were still open, ramped up, and ready to produce.
0: There were many more people. Everyone wanted more alcohol. A lot of wineries, you know, had closed. I mean, a lot of distilleries and breweries and um, wineries were geared up for more population.
1: And San Antonio Winery didn't let that opportunity go to waste. 106 years after Santo Cambianica founded San Antonio Winery, they're bigger than ever. Their little shack, it's a 10-acre complex now. The small Italian community that lived in Lincoln Heights is long gone. The vineyards that stretched from downtown LA to Pasadena have been replaced by homes and businesses. New wineries too. More people than ever are drinking wine and almost everything has changed. But at San Antonio Winery, they still hold on to their history.
0: I'm proud of like just survival. I'm proud of um, that we have accomplished what we have in America these beautiful vineyards we own, and you feel the soil. That's a very, that's a very immigrant thing, and I'm i very proud of that.
1: Even today, San Antonio Winery still reserves a small portion of their grapes to make altar wine for the church. They're one of the largest producers of sacramental wines in the country. They make ports, reds, even white wines for churches, all up to the tastes of individual priests. And I would argue their survival is thanks, in part, to the patron saint of faith in the Holy Communion, St. Anthony.
0: It'll always be the winery of St. Anthony. We should never give up that tradition, that name. Nope, never will.
1: I don't know about you, but I had no idea that Catholic priests choose their own Communion wine. And if you're as discerning with your wines as a Catholic priest, I think you'll love some of my wine pairings of this season's recipes. Persian flatbread, niçoise salad, roasted black olives, and bison meatballs are all elevated with some yummy wines from around the world. Hop onto ifthisfoodcouldtalk.com for a list of our favorite pairings. In our next episode, we're gonna hear food stories from you, our listeners. Stories of families connecting, sharing, and eating so much eating. I can't wait to share these food stories with you and try some of your delicious recipes. From my kitchen to yours, Tissa friends, bless your hands. Take care. Thank you for listening to If This Food Could Talk with me, Claudia Hanna. If you want to support us, you can follow If This Food Could Talk on your favorite podcast listening app. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really helps. You can also get updates on bonus content by following me and American Public Television on Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook. You can find more information on all of our guests this season on each episode's show notes. Production by Tanner Robbins, Carrie Ed Harmon, Reva Goldberg, Jacob Lewis, Claudia Hanna, Nate Toby, John Barth, and the team at Great Feeling Studio. Editing by Yasmin Khan. Sound designed by Tanner Robbins, Jacob Lewis, and Jason Sheesley. Associate producer, Kate Hayes. If This Food Could Talk is based on an original concept by Claudia Hanna. Executive producers for APT Podcast Studios are Jim Dunford, Cynthia Fenneman, and Sean Halford. Art for this podcast was created by Jay Nungesser. Special thanks to Legal by Cody Brown. APT, American Public Television is the leading syndicator of high-quality, top-rated programming to American public television stations. You can learn more at aptonline.org.